All right, let's go to our word this morning in Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 to, 50, verses 57 to 68 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 26, verse 57 to verse 68. In our text this morning, we're going to see the trial of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is one of a couple of trials he's going to undergo. This is probably the most important one since it is in front of the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. Um, But he's also going to undergo a trial from the Roman government, where we know he's going to stand trial before Pilate that we're going to see in several uh, successive sermons on a Sunday after Sunday basis here in a few weeks. Um, Now, we're also going to see this morning that unlike some of his disciples that will come after him, Jesus is unafraid to lose his life. It's a particularly disturbing part of this text. as to how easy it is, it seems, for him to undergo ridicule and false testimony with a resolve and a peace, knowing that his life is going to be taken in just a matter of hours. Let's read our text this morning, Matthew 26, verse 57 to 68. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the uh, the high priest, where the scribes and, uh, and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Let's pray for the word that we've read. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing over the reading of your word, that you would teach us, that you would help us to understand, that you would open our minds and our hearts to see what's here in your word and to obey what you have commanded of us. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we know over the course of this gospel that Jesus has been marked for death and has been prepared to go to the cross. Really from the beginning, all the way back to Matthew chapter 1, we saw that Jesus was coming to save his people from their sins. 
We know that that's been true. He's coming to save his people from their sin. And he's been telling his disciples for like half the gospel now that he's going to die. He's going to be delivered up. He's going to be handed over. He's going to be given to death. That he's going to raise again on the third day. He's told them all of this. So it really comes as no surprise that at the beginning of this chapter, in the beginning of 26, he again predicts that he's going to die. We also see that he's going to be delivered up. He's going to be handed over. And we see at the same time, across town, as Jesus tells his disciples this, across town, under the cover of darkness, there are a group of men plotting and scheming how they can actually put Jesus to death. A group we come to know as the Sanhedrin. These are religious authorities. A group of 70 or more men who are meeting and they're planning exactly how it's going to come about. Now, what they're planning to do is wait until all of the crowds are dispersed, until they leave. These crowds, especially the ones that are coming from Galilee, actually are quite fond of Jesus. They're the ones that, when Jesus is riding into town on a donkey, are standing in front of his colt and singing praises to his name and saying, Hosanna in the highest. They're they're quite fond of Jesus. Jesus And so the plot from the Sanhedrin is to wait until that crowd is mostly dispersed, since they're all there gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, wait until they go home to then in secret, or at least in relative secret, reach out and seize the, this so-called Messiah and kill him. That is until one of his disciples leaves Jesus' side and comes to them and makes a deal with them and says, How much will you give me if I just hand Jesus over to you now? They agree on 30 pieces of silver, and the plan is set in motion for Judas Iscariot to hand Jesus over to the authorities, basically point out his whereabouts and lead them to him, kiss him even, and hand him over so that they can arrest him, put him on a kangaroo kangaroo court, and put him on some sort of makeshift trial and kill him. So after the meal, after the Passover meal, Jesus explains that this is going to happen to his disciples. He knows this is coming. He has, this doesn't catch him off guard at all. He explains to his disciples that it's going to happen. He even knows who it is that's going to hand him in. And at that, Judas leaves the feast, and Jesus leaves the Passover with the rest of his disciples, the eleven minus Judas. They go out to the garden where Jesus then prays to the Father. And he asks if there is any other way than for me to drink the cup of your wrath. Let that happen. If there's any other way for this whole plan to come about other than me drinking the cup of your wrath, then let that be. Nevertheless, it is not what Jesus wills, he says, but what the Father wills. And with that, the answer comes near immediately in an angry mob with their torches and pitchforks and their clubs coming to arrest Jesus, led by none other than Judas Iscariot. Now, last week we saw that Jesus is resigned to the will of God. These people reach out their hands and they grab hold of him and they arrest him, and his disciples are not resigned to the will of God at all. They reach out their hands and they seize their own swords and they commence to hack him. And Jesus says, Put your sword down. That's not how this is going to go about. He even says, look, I have 10,000 legions of angels at my disposal. I don't need your sword. 
I don't need your help. I don't need your might or your strength. The Lord, the Father has 10,000 legions of angels that I could command at a whim if I so chose. I am laying my life down. He is resigned to the will of God to be put to death. And what we saw last week, that when someone is resigned to the will of God, it is disturbing how low their anxiety level really is. Even when they're facing death, being resigned to the will of God happening puts them at ease. Over the next three weeks, we're going to watch three trials of sorts. One is Jesus of Nazareth, obviously. Next week, we're going to see the trial of Simon, known as Simon Peter, the disciple. Finally, the trial of Judas Iscariot. Now, they may not be put on trial in the same way Jesus is, but they certainly have a fate, no less. Judas' fate has already been determined. We've seen that. Jesus has actually said in this chapter, if you go back to verse 24 of this very same chapter, Matthew 26, he says, The Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Peter also has his fate told to him by Jesus in verse 34, just 10 verses later, if you look there, he says, Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now both of these men have called themselves disciples of Jesus. They followed him for more than three years, three and a half years probably, they followed him. And yet here is in their, their, their greatest trial, they're going to be put to the test Are you really a disciple of Jesus? And they've already been told they're going to fail. They're going to go on two different paths. They're certainly going to go different than what we see happen to Jesus right here. He is going to be put to the test right here. Is it true that he really is the Son of God? Is it true that he really is following the plan of the Father that the Father has set in place Is it true that he is after the will of God? But it brings the question to mind for us. How do we define discipleship as it pertains to Jesus? How do we define what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, certainly it means we believe in Jesus. But we live in Alabama. We live in the South. Where if you say, do you believe in Jesus? You're going to get... Almost 100% yes. You'll get a few no's maybe every once in a while, but the vast majority of people are going to say yes. If you ask a more general question, do you believe in God? A question that I'm actually not at all interested in. I think it's a worthless question because it means so many things to so many people. It's so undefined. Do you believe in God? You'll probably get near 100% yeses. Even if it's not true about a certain person, they would probably still answer yes just to avoid the conversation and follow after that. But what does it really mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to actually be a disciple of Christ? In Matthew chapter 10, which is just a handful of chapters before ours, Jesus actually tells us what it means to be his disciple. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. He defines it for us. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Listen to what he says. 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. How does Jesus define a disciple? Well, it's certainly not one who wants to hold on to all of the things that he has in this life, whether father or mother or sister or brother, daughter, son. It's certainly not one who refuses to take up his cross, meaning endure suffering, physical persecution for my sake. It's certainly not one who would turn away from that. Instead, it's one who would go after that. And it's certainly one who would seek to lose his life, to deny himself, to give freely of his life, to see his earthly life as nothing compared to the life he is to gain in eternity. That's how he defines a disciple. So when you ask that question, are you a disciple as Jesus defines it? That's a more interesting question. Are you truly a disciple? Do you truly seek after Christ? So throughout all the next three weeks, we're going to take a closer look at what it actually means to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is going to set the tone for what living a life devoted to God actually looks like. To be comfortable losing one's life for the will of God. What that actually looked like. So it raises the question, more importantly for us, are you a disciple of Jesus. Not just you believe in God, not just you believe in Jesus. Do you follow him as he has laid it out? I want you to follow with me as we go through this story that Matthew has laid out here for us in the way the events take place. Jesus is led to Caiaphas's house, to the courtyard just outside. The house is not more than a mile or two walk from the Mount of Olives where they had been previously, so it would only take a few minutes to get there. It's incidentally a place you can actually go to and stand in the very courtyard where Jesus was tried to this day. You can go stand in that place and you can see how all of these events unfold. You can go in Caiaphas' house and you can see the dungeon where Jesus would have been kept and maybe any other prisoner that they would have taken there. So the, it's not that far from the Mount of Olives. They go on a slight journey there. And what do we find but that Peter is following stealthily behind? No doubt cloak over his head. No doubt under the cover of darkness, not wanting really anybody to see him. Peter's following stealthily behind. And we learn from John's gospel that John is also with him. So Peter and John are traveling together. And John's gospel fills in a few more details about this scenario. They get to the gate of the high priest where there is someone standing guard, a woman. And she knows John because John is familiar with the family of the high priest. And so she lets John in to the courtroom proceedings, but she doesn't know Peter, and so she, is prohib she prohibits him from entering, to which John turns around to her and says, he's a friend of mine, let him in. Peter, incidentally, walks in the courtyard as she allows him to, and by the way, we'll get to this next week, but this is the first time he denies Jesus when he enters in. She says, oh, do you know the man that's on trial? And he says, no. 
what you find is that the prediction of Jesus, you're going to deny me three times, doesn't come about in the kind of way perhaps Peter imagined it. It's not this pointed trial. Are you a believer in this man? It doesn't come about like that. It's a simple, very easy denial as he passes by the gate. But that's next week. Peter is following to see how this thing plays out, to see Matthew tells us how it ends. And so they're gathered here at the high priest's house in the courtyard. And what's gathered there is the Sanhedrin, which is typically a 70-member body with one additional member, the high priest. But when it comes to the whole council being gathered, all that was needed was a quorum which Baptists will be familiar with. A quorum is what's necessary to vote yay or nay. And so 23, as it turns out, was all that was necessary to be considered the whole council. So the whole council, whether that was 23 or 71, we don't know, but they're all gathered there in the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin is looking to bring a formal charge against Jesus so that he is worthy of death. And so they begin... It says in verse 59, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Now, this is a really important part of the process for the Sanhedrin. Because, see, according to Jewish law, we see this in Deuteronomy 17, 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So you can understand why the Sanhedrin first needs to bring a formal charge against Jesus. They want some witnesses to come forward that can actually testify to something that would enable them to put him to death. And it presents difficulty if the Sanhedrin cannot get two people to at least agree on the charge that they are bringing, or at least the essentials of the charge. But do you notice something strange about this text, particularly when it comes to the Sanhedrin looking for this charge? They don't care if the charge is true. In fact, it doesn't have to be true. It can be false. Probably they get the sense that they're not going to find anything that's true. And so they're quite comfortable seeking a false testimony. This is a blatant violation of the Eighth Commandment. Don't bear false witness. But do you see that they're perfectly willing to set aside the commandments of God in order to achieve their ends? They just want Him dead. They don't care if someone has to violate the commandments of God in order to do that. That's not what they want to hear. They um, are particularly also terrified of the truth. Remember, these are the same group of people that have recently, we don't read about it in Matthew's Gospel, but in John's, we certainly read about it that these are the same people that witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead after four days, just days prior to this. So there's a decent chance that some on the Sanhedrin are pretty terrified of the actual truth, that we don't really want to know what is true about this person, we simply want to put him to death because he represents for us a threat to our power and authority. So if you have to violate the Eighth Commandment to put him to death, then let's do it. But at some point in this process, Matthew tells us in verse 60, at least two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now let's be clear about the charge that they're bringing. 
Let's just think about for a second how preposterous this charge actually is. The charge is that Jesus is going to lead a band of peasant warriors with presumably nothing much more than farm equipment into the temple precincts and they're going to walk up to the building of the temple and they're going to commence to hacking away at the building to bring it down to rubble and then they're going to rebuild it in three days. That's the charge. This kind of charge represents the same kind of thing that you and I experience. We walk down the street and we stumble upon somebody who is saying something that's nonsensical, that seems kind of like crazy talk. Do you entertain it or do you just keep walking? You just keep walking. That's essentially the same thing that should be done here. There's tons of people who spout off tons of crazy things all day that they ignore completely. It poses no real threat. The reality of Jesus putting together a band of peasant warriors to come attack the temple and then rebuild it in three days is nothing much more than crazy talk. Why do they entertain it? Because we know that they've set from the beginning, we're going to kill this man. That's the reason they entertain it. Yet, Mark tells us in Mark 14, 59, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So they couldn't even get their story straight when they come forward to talk about this. This is the reason that we see Caiaphas is getting frustrated. You can tell he's getting frustrated in the text. If he couldn't get two witnesses to come forward and agree on the same charge, whose testimony, uh, uh, then, then they couldn't kill Jesus. They couldn't put him to death. If he can't get two to agree. In his frustration, he turns to Jesus to see if the false testimony that's been presented might, I don't know, rile him up. Maybe he might do something that would be worthy of death if he hears a false testimony. And so he says, Have you no answer to make? This is in verse 62. Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. It's at this point we see a drastic difference in the strategy employed by the Sanhedrin versus the defense employed by Jesus. The Sanhedrin who are at the pinnacle of religious status. They're number one in the land. There's nobody in the land who has more authority over the law and the scriptures than this group of men. And the strategy that they employ is to accept false testimony, even seek it out, in order to kill a man who is a political threat to them, an innocent man. Jesus, on the other hand, is the true pinnacle of religious authority. He's the Son of God. No one has more authority on earth than He does, able to command 10,000 legions of angels if He so chose. He's committed no crime, and yet, as people come forward to falsely accuse him, he says nothing. He refuses to even defend himself. Now, why can't Jesus just give a shake of the head? Like, while they're up there giving the false testimony, why can't he just be there kind of rolling his eyes, shaking his head, 
saying, no, this isn't true. Or maybe he could just explain to Caiaphas, okay, when I said that, I obviously wasn't talking about the building itself. I was talking about my body, which I was calling a temple, and then if you kill it, I'll raise it in three days. Something. Anything. Maybe just something that would sort of set the record straight. Give that sort of explanation. Why doesn't he say anything? He's giving us a definition of what it looks like to deny yourself. You see that in Scripture, what it means to follow Christ is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. Well, what does it mean to deny myself? Well, we know just from a few passages before, Jesus is in the garden praying to the Father, if there's any other way for this cup to pass from me, let it happen. But if, if not, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. We know from that prayer in the garden that there's uh, some capacity that he has in his heart where he has a different desire than what's about to take place. That he doesn't want to drink the cup of the wrath of God. And yet he's resigned to do it. Why? That's denial of self. That's what it means. That he's deferring to the will of God and saying, He knows what's best for me. I have the power, I have the authority to command the angels, but I'm denying that power and authority and I'm instead submitting to the will of the Father. And His will is for my death and that's going to come about through false testimony. It's about the Father's will, not His own. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 verse 7, He was oppressed he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Caiaphas, thus far, really has nothing with which to condemn Jesus. He's got nothing. Now remember, the council has decided already that they're going to kill Jesus. So then why is it that they're going through this trial. It's because they don't have the power or the authority to actually kill him. They could certainly do it in secret. We're going to see that with, or we, we will see that in Acts with Stephen. They can do things like that in secret, but they can't do that in the open, not at Passover week, certainly. They have to have some sort of charge that they can present to the Roman authorities so the Roman authorities will actually see it as a threat. If they don't have that, then they've got nothing. He can't come to Pilate with just a simple accusation. He has to have a charge that Rome sees as a threat. So what is he going to do? He's at a moment of desperation. Well, wouldn't you know, very ironically, that at his moment of desperation, his Savior comes. In none other than the person of Jesus himself. Jesus helps Caiaphas out. You realize that? What happens in 63 and 64 is Jesus giving to Caiaphas the charge. Caiaphas turns to Jesus and he says in verse 63, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. I have to think that Caiaphas half expected Jesus again to remain silent. But of course he doesn't. And his answer that he gives, it does not disappoint. Let me tell you, 
Starting in verse 64, Jesus said to them, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? So Jesus is, in part, quoting from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 here. And he did this a couple of months ago for us in Matthew 24, verse 30. And before we go into detail about what he means by that quote, uh, it's important that we do understand what he's saying there. We have to understand some parameters first of what he actually says in this passage, particularly in verse 64. Jesus first tells Caiaphas, from now on. What does that mean when he says, from now on? It means that what I'm about to tell you is going to take place right now. In the immediate future, what I'm about to tell you is going to take place. It's going to not only take place now, but from now on means it's going to take place, it's going to start now, and it's going to continue into the future. Yeah? For a long time. Not only that, you're going to see it. Caiaphas is going to lay eyes on it. From now on, you're going to see. Second, we also see Caiaphas interprets what Jesus says as blasphemy. He understands that exactly what Jesus said means that he is equating himself with God. Caiaphas tears his robes and he says, that's the charge. He sees himself as our king. He sees himself as God on earth. That's enough of a threat to Rome that we could bring the charge. He sees it as blasphemy. And third, we see that the rest of the Sanhedrin also understands it not just to be blasphemy, but that he's calling himself the Messiah. That in this statement, he's calling himself the Christ. So Jesus will not respond to the false accusations that are brought against him. But when he's asked about his true identity, he tells them the truth. And he's unafraid at what outcome the truth will produce. In fact, he knows what outcome it's going to produce. And he says it anyway. Now what is, he, what is, what, what, what is this that he's saying about himself. Daniel 7 is a pivotal chapter in understanding Jesus' ministry, and I think you really can't understand the Gospel of Matthew itself without understanding probably Daniel 7 as a whole, but also particularly this passage that Jesus quotes. So let me set the scene for you. I did this a few months ago, and I want you to hear it again. The year is about 550 B.C. There's a man by the name of Daniel who was a Jew by birth, He's risen through the ranks of Babylon, and he has become a ruler over many provinces in Babylon. He's a high, trusted official who grew up a Jew and was imported into Babylon. Some years prior, he was still a young boy, and he and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known to you as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as we all like to say it in their English names, Yorshak, Meshach, and a bungalow. They were all kidnapped by Babylon, and they were hauled off as prisoners to Babylon, all four of them. But by virtue of God blessing these four young men, 
Also giving Daniel the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, these four boys rose to prominence in Babylon. But some time has passed since Nebuchadnezzar and since he had been interpreting dreams, and Nebuchadnezzar has died. His successor is a man by the name of Belshazzar, and Daniel serves in his kingdom, in his court. He's now on the throne. But to the east of Babylon, there is another ruler, by the man, man by the name of Cyrus, who is leading the Persian Empire. And at some point, he invades the Medes, and they become together a conglomerate called the Medo-Persian Empire. And he's out on the horizon, and he's threatening Babylon, throwing stones and sticks and things like that. And he's ready to come in and invade Babylon and free the Jews, and soon he will. He'll free the Jews, and many of them will be freed to return to the Promised Land. Now, Daniel is personally going to see king after king come to prominence and then fall. Every kingdom, every authority, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Cyrus, he's going to see them come to the throne, and then they're going to conquer in order to get to the throne, and then they're going to be conquered time after time. Now, pause the talk of Daniel, and let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 through 3, we see Adam and Eve there in the garden. The man and the woman, they're made in the image of God. And to them is given dominion. They are allowed to rule and to have authority to exercise God's rule and reign over the earth. However, not only were Adam and Eve not exercising the dominion of God, but they were dominated by what? A beast of the field. A serpent comes in, deceives them, and dominates them. And they fell into sin, and we and the human race along with them. So ever since, the kingdom of man, as it were, who is to reign in the exercise the dominion of God, ever since they were dominated by beasts, they took on the character of beasts and began to exercise rule and authority and dominion in a beastly sort of fashion. So ever since... Kingdoms have risen and fallen, being conquered by beasts that were stronger and nastier than the one before. And so the Bible uses this metaphor for beasts, of beasts, as a metaphor for the kingdoms that have exercised authority. Ungodly, beastly dominion. But on this night for Daniel, God gives him a vision. In his vision, he sees this pattern of one beast who is particularly gnarly rising up and then being conquered by a beast that is more gnarly and more nasty than he is. And on and on it goes until we get to finally a fourth beast that is more fierce and more powerful than all the beasts that have preceded, preceded it. And it conquers all the beasts that are on the throne. So he sees this vision of thrones and beasts that are sitting on the throne. And one beast after another rises up and conquers. And then finally this fourth beast comes in and conquers all of them. But then something happens. All of these beasts are sitting on their thrones. And there's one throne in the middle of them all which remains empty. And in this vision, amid the chaos of these beasts raging the Ancient of Days, which is the Old Testament depiction of God the Father, comes in and occupies the lone throne. 
And immediately all of the chaos from all the other beasts ceases. Except for that pesky fourth beast. He continues his chattering and his gnawing and his gnashing of teeth. And so with a swipe, the Ancient of Days slaughters him, takes his carcass and throws it in the fire. Now everybody's really quiet. He turns to the rest of the beasts and he takes away all their authority. All the authority comes back to him. But, Daniel says, he not only took away their authority, he allowed them to live for a little while longer. And then next in the sequence, this happens in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in the middle of all the beasts raging and making war, the Ancient of Days comes in, takes away their dominion, and gives the dominion to one like the Son of Man. He's not like a beast. His dominion is not like the beastly dominion. His dominion is one like a son of Adam, who comes to the Ancient of Days riding on what? A horse? No. Cloud. He's coming riding on a cloud, and what is given to him? All the authority from the beasts are given to him. They're allowed to live for a little while longer, but all their authority is stripped and given to this Adam-like person, creature. He's presented before the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and He is crowned. And following the dominion being given to, to this new and better Adam, no other beast will ever have the dominion. They'll never get it back. All the authority in heaven and on earth will be given to Him. And no other beast can ever snatch it back. It's interesting that in the Great Commission, when Jesus rises from the dead, what is it that he says to his disciples at the beginning? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So Jesus, coming to our passage this morning, tells Caiaphas, the vision that Daniel saw was me. And from now on, you're going to get a front row seat you're going to watch it happen, Caiaphas. I'm going to come riding on a cloud, and I'm going to take all the authority from all the beasts. The irony here is that Caiaphas is one of the beasts. Caiaphas, your authority is going to be stripped from you, and it's going to be given to me. And Caiaphas is going to get a front row seat. He's going to watch it happen. And over the next 40 years, the authority of the Jewish establishment, which puts Israel, all of Israel, under its thumb, which swears its allegiance to Rome so that they're not put away. You understand why they want to kill Jesus? This is precisely the reason they want to kill Jesus. It's because they're afraid that if everybody serves this person who claims to be king and all the Jews turn their allegiance to him because they see him rising, raising people up from the dead, then Rome's going to come in and squash them. 
like a bug. So they're terrified that that's what Rome is going to do. So the only solution they have is to put him to death. So with that, they hold all of Israel under their thumb. They are a beast. They're not one like the Son of Man. They're a beast. And Jesus is telling Caiaphas, you're going to see it from now on. And so what he's done is just put himself on equal footing as the Ancient of Days. He's also called himself the Messiah because there's no doubt in Daniel 7, 13 and 14 that that figure coming riding on the clouds is the Messiah. That's why all the rest of the Sanhedrin comes around and goes, prophesy you Christ. That's what you've claimed to be by quoting Daniel 7. Ironically, as Jesus testifies to the truth here, he gives them the ammo that they need to put him to death, which is the means by which their authority will be stripped of him and be given, be stripped of them and given to him. How is that? Well, he's going to save his people from their sins, so they're going to be included in the family of God by dying on their behalf, but then he's going to rise on the third day, giving them life eternal, so they don't belong to the kingdom of the beast anymore. The beast has no authority over them. The beast can threaten their life, but he can't take it away. So the very means that he's given them to kill him is the means by which he's going to take away their power and authority. Now, are there things that Jesus could have said to preserve his own life? To maybe get out of trouble? I'm sure there is. As I said, he could have called down 10,000 legions of angels to rescue him from this predicament. He had the power to save himself. What's evident in this passage is that Jesus does not seek to save his own life. Spoiler alert, Peter and Judas, Peter especially, is going to seek to save his own life. Judas already sought to save his own life. But Jesus is leading the way. Demonstrating for all his disciples in the present and in the future that to find your eternal life, you have to lose the one you've got. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father." kingdom that Jesus died to attain is open to you. The kingdom that he died to attain is open to you. It's available for every single person within earshot of its message. And everyone who is even included in the family of God needs to hear that time and again. It is available to you. If you are in the family of God because of the death of Christ, because He denied Himself, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Neither height, nor depth, nor wars, nor famine, nor pestilence, nor plague. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
Because he has suffered on our behalf, because the wrath of God has been poured out, because he has drained the cup dry, there is no wrath stored up for you. But what does it require? In order to actually be a disciple of Jesus, it requires that you be willing to lose your own life. In fact, you have to lose it. Now, Sometimes, that means physical persecution and physical death. And honestly, the more days that go by, the more we feel like that is an ever-present reality that's encroaching upon our shores. Amen. You see that? Yeah. And there very well could be a day where we see blatant persecution, death, I mean, physical torment of Christians in America. There's no doubt we will eventually see that. We may not see it with our eyes, but America's shores will no doubt one day see that. So for some, it will mean physically being willing to die. But actually, every day, it means something for you in the here and now. There might be a day where a sword is put to your neck, but they're very well, you could live your whole life and never see that. But every single day, there is a dying to self that is required. And all of these come from Scripture. Husbands want things their way. Yes, husbands? Yeah? Yes, wives? I see a lot of yeses from the wives, so I know it's true, even if I don't get amens from the husbands. Husbands want things their way. And yet, the Scriptures call you to live with your wives in an understanding way. Wives want things their way. Amen? Husbands? (laughs) Husbands will testify to that one. Yet, the Bible calls you to submit to your husband. A word that's become a curse word in our culture. Single people have the feeling that their time is their own. Look at all the time I have to do whatever I want. Yet Paul comes in in 1 Corinthians 7 and says, be anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. So your time, it turns out, is not your own. We want to raise our kids to be athletes, cheer for the right teams, That's the pinnacle of importance. The Bible tells us to raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Sometimes actively programming against athletics. Let's be honest, we want to be admired by our friends, by our family, by our coworkers. We want to be thought to be intelligent. How many of us in here really want to be thought be idiots. Not a single one of us. Yet the gospel that I believe in, Paul tells us, is foolishness to those who are perishing. How often then, for the sake of intelligence, for the sake of not wanting to be thought of as a fool, I swallow the gospel when I'm around unbelieving people. Got to be honest, love to be gone on Sundays, 
Church makes a terrible hobby. Boats, they make better hobbies. We'd love to be gone or otherwise occupied on all the days of our weekend. We only get a few. Yet the Bible tells us to not forsake the assembling of the saints together. Actually, page after page of Scripture calls you to die to yourself daily. A call to follow Christ is being willing to lose your life. Rights you think you have, privileges, authority, calls you to give it up. That a life of faithful obedience to Christ A life resigned to the will of God for your life. That's what he calls you to. And what does it require? But God, I want this. To which he says no. But do you understand? She doesn't think like I do. She's irrational. Live with it in an understanding way. Do you understand? He's an idiot. A buffoon, even. And I don't mean in a gospel sense. Submit. Children, do you understand the parents that I have? Obey. What we see is daily, the Lord calls us, die to yourself. This is what it means to follow Christ. Regular, everyday obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for us as just individuals that that we put before us every single day this call to just submit to your will for our life, which as we see time and again reiterated to us in your scriptures, in your word, is obedience. It's putting to death the sinful temptations that we have to rebel, claim authority, claim power, fight for what we deserve or what we think is ours. Your word calls us to give it up. And instead, just pursue faithful, everyday obedience. And I confess it's it's something that I struggle with mightily, day in and day out, as we all do. So we pray for your help, that we might obey this word that you've put before us. That you would never let it leave our consciousness. That as we think of Christ, that we have this same mind that Christ had who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself became submissive even to the put to death pray that we would do likewise as we take up our cross as we learn what it means to take up our cross daily and follow you we pray these things in Jesus name amen